I'd like to welcome you to week three of our series out of Mark's gospel account that we have called The Way of Jesus. The um, kind of said this more or less on the, on the front end of all these teachings so far. I'm going to try to repeat this uh, every week of this series. But, but the idea behind, behind this series is that there's a tendency in all of us to try to decide for ourselves who Jesus is and, and more or less try to create him in our image. <clears throat> and the nice part of, of creating Jesus in our image is that a Jesus that we create will never challenge us. The downside of that is a Jesus we create also cannot transform us because he's not real. He's just a projection of ourselves. And so if you and I want to be uh, transformed by Jesus the way that Scripture says we can be in countless testimonies of men and women, specifically over the last 2,000 years, says we can be. What we need more than anything else is the real Jesus, and that's exactly what we find in Mark's gospel account. So this morning, we're going to be in chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. I'll read it to you, and we'll begin. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, preaching the good news of God. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As he was passing along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother. They were casting a net into the sea since they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in their boat mending their nets. Immediately, he called them... And they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is God's word. What you're seeing in this passage is the first time as recorded in Mark's gospel account. Uh, This is the first time that we actually hear Jesus speaking. Prior to this, Mark has, um, he's talked about Jesus. Last week, uh, we saw Jesus make his first appearance, but here Jesus is actually speaking. And uh, as soon as Jesus opens his mouth, he's talking about this thing called the good news of God. He's talking about this thing called the kingdom of God, and he's immediately calling people to follow him. And that doesn't sound that strange to us because we've, you know, we've heard that you know, for a while. Even if you weren't raised in church, you probably heard this idea of Jesus you know, patrolling the Sea of Galilee and, and, and calling fishermen to become his disciples and follow him, but, but for readers in Mark's day, they would have appreciated immediately how different this is. Because in, in Mark's day and in pretty much all traditional cultures, the way that it worked was the students or the pupils approached the, the master, the teacher. In other words, disciples sought out the rabbi. And the hope was that in, in seeking out a rabbi and calling out to a rabbi that you could present yourself in such a way, basically you would market yourself in the hope that the rabbi would see something in you that was worth investing in and polishing up and developing. And if that rabbi did, then they would turn around and basically commit essentially the rest of their life to educating you and training you and making you into a disciple modeled after their image and in their likeness. But what you're seeing right here on the front end of Jesus' ministry is Jesus, like he so often did, is completely turning the way that, that things were done on its head. And instead of his disciples seeking him and calling, them, calling him, what Jesus is doing here is he's seeking out his disciples and he's calling to his disciples. 
And the picture that Mark's painting here, which is something that's explicitly stated elsewhere in Scripture, is this idea that you really cannot have a relationship with Jesus unless he calls you. Really, you can only relate to Jesus if he calls you. And so that's what I want to spend some time talking about this morning, the call of Jesus. And what I'd like to do is look at what this passage shows us about, first off, what the call of Jesus is based on, what the call of Jesus uh, leads to, what its goal is, what its aim is, and then lastly, what that call requires. So first off, let's talk about what Jesus' call is based on. The answer is found in verses 14 and 15, which reads, After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee preaching the good news of God. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. So like I mentioned, this is the first time recorded in Mark's gospel account that Jesus is speaking, and, and he's immediately, as soon as he opens his mouth, He's preaching something called the good news of God. That's what the call of Jesus is based on. Uh, It's based on this thing called the good news, or some of your versions translate that, the gospel of God. So I wanted to, this gives me an opportunity to take a few minutes and talk about the gospel. And the reason that's worth doing is because I found that word gets thrown around so often, it becomes an adjective for basically everything that we do in the church that we get to the point where we don't even really know what we're talking about and we don't know how to define it. For instance, um, in the fall of 2000, last year, 2022, for the first time as a pastor ever, I did uh, some premarital counseling for a couple that lived out of state. They don't attend this church, but they reached out to me to do their wedding, and so I I did their premarital counseling through FaceTime, which was very strange, but I guess welcome to the world post-COVID. And so we went through four sessions, and at the end of the last session, they were both raised in church, had a, I would say, like a quasi-religious background, and, and, and I would say a quasi-spiritual interest in their present, because, you know, the premarital counseling was actually their idea. Uh, but at the very end of, of our final session, I just asked them the question, I said, what is the gospel? If, 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 I, if I were to ask you, if someone were to ask you, what is the gospel, the message of Christianity, how would you define that? And the guy answered first. And he told me that he thought the gospel was the words that Jesus Christ actually personally spoke as recorded in the New Testament. So if you have one of those words of Christ in red, the red letters are the gospel. That's what he thought the gospel was. And then the girl spoke, and she said that she thought the gospel was a genre of music. And she sort of chuckled when she said that. And technically speaking, she's not wrong. So kind of task failed successfully there. But before any of us judge, what I found is that even people who've been raised in church for decades... And throw the word gospel around all the time. I believe the gospel. I've been saved by the gospel. You know, the gospel is the good news. Even people that have been raised around that term for basically all their life struggle to answer the question when asked, okay, well, what actually is it? And I'll just, speaking from personal experience, I was, from, from first to 12th grade, I was in Christian private school. And I can, I can promise you, after graduating, uh, after 12 years of that, I could not have answered the question clearly if somebody asked me, how do you define the gospel? What actually is it? So let's, let's, let's talk about that. What actually is the gospel? To answer that question, I want to get into the mind of Mark's readers. Because in Mark's day, this might surprise you to hear, in Mark's day, the word gospel was used, but it, it, it almost never had a religious connotation to it until Jesus. So in Mark's day, this is how you would have read this when you read this account, uh, a gospel, it, it, it referred to history-making, life-altering news. So, for example, we have a Roman inscription from around the time that Jesus and Mark walked this planet, and it starts off by saying, this is exactly what it reads, 
the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. What that is, it's the story of the birth and the coronation of Caesar Augustus. And so again, a gospel was news of this basically life-altering event that, that at least had the, the um, capacity to change things for people. So a, a gospel could be the birth and the coronation of a king. A gospel could be news of a victory that had been won. For all you history buffs, when um, Persia invaded Greece and the Greeks defeated the Persians in the Battle of Marathon, after that battle was won, uh, Greece sent messengers into all of the major cities like Athens and Sparta, and those messengers carried with them a gospel message. And when they arrived at the towns that they were headed toward, they, their, their gospel was, hey, I have this really good news. This war has been fought and won on your behalf. Uh, so now you don't have to worry about being enslaved or being killed by these people that hated you. Now you can live free and you can live safe. So again, a gospel in Mark's day uh, was news of an event that happened in history that changed your status forever. And so with that in mind, when we talk about, when, when Christians talk about the gospel, or to use Mark's lingo here, when we talk about the gospel of God, what we're talking about is something uh, that, that Jesus has done for us in history that changes our status forever. So when Mark's readers read that the very first thing Jesus did, the very first time he opened his mouth, he's preaching a gospel, they would have immediately understood that whatever Jesus' message is, whatever, he's, whatever belief system he's come to install, it's not the same as every other religion. And I say that because the essence of every other religion, when you really boil it down, the essence of every other religion at its core is advice about what you need to do. The essence of Christianity, when held up alongside of that, when boiled down, the essence of Christianity is not advice about what you need to do. It's news of what Jesus Christ has done for you. It's news about, that's worth clapping about, actually, amen. We can get excited about that. The essence of Christianity at its core is news about what Jesus Christ has accomplished for you through his life, his death, and his resurrection, which has the power to change your status forever. And so one of the many reasons that Christianity, specifically when held up alongside all these other belief systems and religions and philosophies and ways of life, one of the things that makes Christianity unique, I've heard it said and I agree with this, is Christianity is the only belief system that actually has the power to lift your burdens off of you rather than just pile another one on. Because think about it this way. When you receive advice, and I'm going to share a personal story that I want to say I'm not bitter about, but I'm bitter about it. When you receive advice about how you need to live, the love that you need to have, the parent or spouse or person or friend or boss or employee that you need to be, the courage that you should have, the strength that you should have, the wisdom that you should have, the integrity that you should have, when you receive advice about how you should live, even if it's really good advice, even if you know it's accurate, even if it's inspirational, at the end of the day, the only thing that advice has the power to do is add another burden to the list of burdens that I'm sure you're already carrying around. For instance, because I promised I'd give you one, I remember 15 years ago when I was in my early 20s, I was talking to a friend of mine who's still a friend of mine, so after a period of healing, we got, you know, we're good now. Now, it really wasn't a big deal, but when, um, 15 years ago when I was in my early 20s, I remember I was going through something that was incredibly difficult for me at the time. Looking back, not a big deal at all, like almost nothing in your 20s is, or at least 
Nothing in my 20s was for me now in hindsight. But at the time, it felt like the biggest idea in the world. It was very difficult um, for me to walk through when I was kind of freaking out. And so I confided in a friend of mine about the situation I was going through. And he, his advice verbatim, it has been seared on my soul. He said, Ryan, you just need to be bigger than this. Not helpful. And uh, I remember thinking when I heard that, you know, you're not wrong. <laughs> uh, and that, that is, in fact, that's really good advice. Um, but the more that I thought about that advice, the more it crushed me. Because now on top of the situation that was hard enough for me to walk through on its own, now I have the added burden of having to come to terms with the fact that I'm not the type of person that can just flip a switch, pull a lever, and decide to not let this thing that I'm going through rattle me like it was rattling me. So that advice... All it did at the end of the day is it added another burden to me. And I say that to say that's really, at the end of the day, that's the only thing that every other religion has the power to do for you. And in saying that, I just want to be clear here. Other religions might have good advice. Uh, other religions might have lots of wise sayings. Other religions might have uh, inspirational ideas. But when held up alongside Christianity, what becomes clear is the one thing that other religions will never have, think about this, is the power to make you feel like one of those citizens in Athens and Sparta. When a town crier arrived to your town with the news that a war had been fought and won on your behalf, that enemies that would have enslaved you or killed you have been defeated for you even though you didn't lift a finger to earn that victory, and now because of what has been done for you, you are free to live in safety and in peace. The gospel alone has the power to do that and to do that in an infinite way because it's not about what you and I need to do. It's about what Jesus Christ has done for us. And what Jesus has done for us is defeat the ultimate enemies that we would have never had an answer for in and of ourselves, namely our sin and death itself. And so first and foremost, the call of Jesus is based on the gospel, the news of what Jesus has done for us in history. That's what it's based on. Second question I want to get to today is, okay, if that's what, if that's what the call of Jesus is based on, then what I would want to know, and I'm sure what Mark's readers were dying to know when they started to read this account for the first time, is, all right, it's based on a message that's sort of unlike any other belief system we've heard of. Got it. Well, what's, where does this call lead to? What's the goal of this? Where does this thing dead end? What's the, what's the target that we're aiming at here? And the answer is found in verse 17. Very famous phrase that you've probably heard before if you have any background in church. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Now, what Jesus is saying here is that the goal of following him is to make you and I into something that's referred to here as fishers of people. Now, important side note. I read, I read from the uh, Holman Christian Standard Version of the Bible. In my Bible, there's a little, you know, like an indicator at, beside this verse that leads to a note at the bottom of the page which tells you that in the original Greek, in the original Greek, this verse literally says, uh, if you were to literally translate the Greek word for word into the English, it would be translated as Jesus saying, I will make you to become fishers of people. You say, what's the difference? I like that note because it's communicating something that, that I am, am all too prone to forgetting, which is that becoming what Jesus is making us is not instantaneous. 
It's a process. It, to be, you know, truth be told, it's a lifelong process. But the goal of that process is to become what Jesus refers to here as fishers of people. So, million-dollar question, what exactly does that mean? Uh, in biblical imagery, you see this in Old and New Testament, but in biblical imagery and specifically uh, when it comes to Hebrew symbolism, the sea or water basically represented a place of, of chaos, of terror, of the uncontrollable forces of the world, of darkness. It was something that, that evoked fear in the listener. It was basically, it represented the kingdom of, of darkness, or to use biblical language, the kingdom of the world is what, is what the sea represented. And so when Jesus says here, I will make you fishers of people, what he's essentially saying is, I will make you the kind of person who knows how to draw people out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now, I wanted to spend time on that because all my life, you know, I've kind of heard that idea, this idea of fishing for people means that, you know, you're going to be able to essentially do what the apostles did, which is stand on a street corner and, and preach a convincing message that people are going to want to then give their life to Jesus. But this is important. When Jesus says, I'm going to make you fishers of people, does that entail a message that you'll speak on his behalf? Yes, but it's primarily more about who you are than anything you're going to do or say. Jesus is talking about transforming you into the kind of person that can draw people out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God. So this might be a little bit of an abstract idea. And in saying this, I recognize that for some of you, uh, the, the answer is no. But if you have, if you have ever met somebody that has been so, you could use a bunch of different verbs here, healed or transformed or molded by or filled or whatever it is by the love of God, that it just burned out all of their insecurity and all of their self-absorption and all their self-centeredness and all of their you know, fear, pride, whatever, to the point that when you met them, you could tell they were just interested in you because people aren't stupid. We know, we have a radar that tells us when somebody is really just saying something or doing something for us because they want something in return. I don't know if you've ever met somebody like this, but if you have met someone that it's just apparent to you that they have been, that's been burned out of them and they're just interested and getting to know you and love you and serve you and honor you. They're just, they're over themselves and they want to know who you are. Biblically speaking, that, that is what you would refer to as a fisher of people. One of the best examples of this is contained in a, a, a verse in, um, in Acts chapter 4. The suspense is killing you, I know. I don't have a slide for this because I didn't think about it until this morning, so sorry, just going to have to take my word for it. But in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, it says this. It says, When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized they had been with Jesus. <clears throat> so just to give you some context there, the book of Acts is, is basically the historical record of the birth and early development of this thing that we're a part of now called the church. So in Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost, Peter preaches, the Spirit falls, 3,000 people believe a message that Jewish people were the least likely people on the planet to believe, which is that a dead Jewish carpenter had come back to life because he really was God. 3,000 people believed that, the day of Pentecost. By Acts chapter 4, that number had grown to 5,000. Now, the fact that that movement had taken off as suddenly as it did was basically unsettling to the religious leaders of the day, so they pulled in who they perceived to be the leaders of that movement, that's that's Peter and John for questioning. And let me read this verse again. 
It says on the front end in verse 13, when they observed, that literally means to see with the eyes, when they saw with their own eyes the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained, here's the point that I'm getting at. What grabbed people about the first followers of Jesus was not just their message. It it wasn't like when you heard the disciples say what they had seen and what they'd experienced as followers of Jesus. People didn't come away just saying, man, that was such a compelling message. They're such articulate speakers. They have such an airtight apologetic defense. They're so convincing or persuasive or they dunk on people with their arguments. It wasn't about what you heard from them. It's what you saw in them. They observed a boldness in the people who had spent time with Jesus to the point that they looked into their life and they saw a courage and a quiet confidence and a boldness and a strength. There was no fear. There was no insecurity. Those men knew exactly who they were and what they believed and who Jesus was to the point that Scripture's telling us that the religious leaders looked at them and the only conclusion they could come to is they, just, they must have spent a lot of time with Jesus. I don't know how to explain it any other way. I'm saying that to say that's a fisher of people. That's someone who has been so healed of their self-absorption and their pride and their fear and their self-centeredness and their, their themness, new word, uh, that they were now able to draw people uh, out of their lifestyles and into the life for which we have been made, which is a life of service to the God who made us and a life in service to the people that he's placed in our lives. That's what Jesus is talking about here, but this is so important, and I mentioned this earlier. The point is that becoming that is a process. That's why Jesus did not say, pray to me and I'll make you fishers of people or you know, read the Bible through or go to synagogue once a week. There's, there's, there's really no concrete, definable action there. Jesus simply says, follow me. It's basically Jesus' way of saying, he's just inviting people. Let's take a walk. Just keep up with me. Just stay in, just stay in my footsteps. And I promise you, if you continue to put one foot in front of the other, Jesus says, I will turn you into something that you could never be apart from me. I will heal you in ways you could never otherwise be healed. Now, to me, even if I wasn't raised in church, even if I didn't consider myself a Christian, I would at least be interested in that kind of claim that somebody can do that in my life. But it, of course, raises what will be our third and our last question, which is what does this thing cost? So what we've talked about up to this point is, is first and foremost, what this call is based on. We've talked about, secondly, what this call leads to, what its aim is. But thirdly, and I saved this question for last intentionally, okay, well then what does this call actually require? What's this going to cost me? And the answer, <clears throat> I'm sorry to tell you, is everything. <clears throat> Let me read verses 16 through 20 because the way that Mark answers this is brilliant. As Jesus was passing along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother. They were casting a net into the sea since they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I'll make you fish for people. Pay real careful attention to this verbiage. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. 19. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in their boat mending their nets. Immediately he called them, and pay real careful attention to this, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So what you're reading there is Jesus goes to one group, Simon and Andrew. He says, follow me, and Scripture specifically tells us they left their nets. 
To the other group, James and John, Jesus calls them to follow him, and immediately we're told that they leave their father. Now, here's what we know from the rest of the gospel accounts. These men, they did go on to fish again, and they did go on to talk about their parents again, but in, uh, talk to their parents again. But in specifically telling us that one group left behind their nets and one group left behind their father, something of incredible importance is being communicated to us. And to understand what I mean, you have to get a little bit into the difference between our culture and Mark's culture. In our modern, Western, hyper-individualistic culture, for most people, not for all of us, but in general, for most people in our culture, the idea of saying goodbye to your parents, which is what James and John did, walking away from your parents, really not that big a deal. But the idea of, of giving Jesus priority over your career, meaning Jesus calling you to walk away from your nets, I mean, what that was, these are fishermen, walking away from your nets is walking away from your profit margin. The idea in a culture that is so obsessed with production and career as, as ours is, this idea, you think about this, this idea that, wait a minute, if I follow Jesus where he wants me to go and do what he calls me to do, then I might not be as successful as I otherwise could have been. I, I might not make as much money as I otherwise could have. I might not get to do the things that I could have otherwise done had I not followed Jesus. That's a hard thing for people in our culture, but the point is, it wasn't like that in Mark's day. In Mark's day, it was exactly the opposite. In Mark's day, uh, the, the, the weight that you gave to your career, to your occupation, to your profession, was nothing compared to the weight that you gave to family relationships. Family relationships were the most important thing. I remember the first time that I really started to realize this is when I went to Israel myself. I think it was back in 2017. I remember we were in some, basically like a shopping center, and there were a number of restaurants. And I noticed that none of the... Uh, None of the hours of operation were listed, and it seemed like there was no consistent, it was just different from business to business. So I was asking the tour guide, his name was Roz, what was going on. He said something that so struck me. You know, this, this helped me see kind of my culture for what it is in a way that I think normally we only can when we get outside of it. He said, here's what's going on. The people that own those restaurants know exactly how much money they need to make each day. And the moment that they make that money, they close down because they value time with friends and family more than profit. Isn't that amazing? Now, in the West, we might even hear that and say, hey, that, we got a lot to learn from them, but we don't do that. That is anathema to people in the modern, productive, career-driven West. But with that, with that being understood, here's what's being communicated here. What's being communicated is whether you come from a modern society like ours in which we look to our career to tell us who we are, to give us a sense of self-worth, to give us a sense of self altogether and, and, and identity, or whether you come from a more traditional culture like Marx in which you look to your family to tell you who you are, to give you a sense of self, to, to, to let you know that you're a valuable person. Regardless of what the foundation for your life is, Jesus wants to take its place. And if you and I want the transformation that Jesus alone can provide, that's the cost. Just to summarize this, the cost of following Jesus is that we put pleasing him and serving him and following him and worshiping him and obeying him and knowing him, we make that the primary passion in our lives. That and nothing less is the cost of the call of Jesus Christ. What that means is Jesus refuses to be what the human heart so naturally tries to make him which is just a means to our end. 
When I was putting this idea together, first thing that popped into my mind is this quote from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, talking about the cost of following Jesus. If you know anything about C.S. Lewis, he was, an, he was an avid atheist who became, by his own words, a reluctant Christian after he studied it. But because of that, he had a real knack for communicating Christianity in a way that appealed to intelligent secular people. Here's what he said when it comes to following Jesus, his words. There must be a real giving up of the self. You must throw it away blindly, so to speak. Christ will indeed give you a real personality, but you must not go to him for the sake of that. As long as your own personality is what you're bothering about, you're not going to him at all. The very first step is to try to forget about the self altogether. Your real new self, he's talking about transformation now, which is Christ's and also yours and yours just because it is his. Let me read that again. Your real new self will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you are looking for him. He asked the question, does that sound strange? The principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. And this is my favorite sentence ever penned by C.S. Lewis. You ready for this? Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. Some of us know that personally, including the guy with the microphone on his face. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. <clears throat> I share that with you because that, and nothing less, is what those, <laughs> those poor fishermen were in for. The day that a rabbi named Jesus came patrolling the shores of Galilee and said, why don't you come follow me? And what we know from the rest of the gospel accounts and the book of Acts and church history is that the journey that Jesus took his disciples on was anything but easy. We'll see it in the weeks ahead, but just a, really just a few months after this initial meeting, what you'll find is that these disciples were running for their lives. They were cowering with fear. They were failing publicly. They were deserting, denying, doubting Jesus despite everything that they had seen and heard. They were wondering how on earth God could have any hand in what it is he was walking them through. And when you zoom out from the journey that Jesus took his first disciples on, what it is, it's this process in which they are continually over and over again being brought to the end of themselves, being shown in the most painful ways exactly how weak and exactly how frail and exactly how inconsistent they were in their own strength and exactly how much they needed Jesus. But all that was, and we can see it clearly, like they could not when they were walking through it, all that was was the process that Jesus put them in to make them who he was calling them to be. And now if I can get real personal here, I understand that Jesus did that with his disciples. But for whatever reason, 
my heart is so surprised when I find that Jesus does that with me. I don't know what it is about my human heart. Maybe you can relate to this. But I get so surprised when Jesus does the very same thing in my life that he's done in every single man and woman's life that's chosen to follow him. When you zoom out from, from the Bible, I'm talking Genesis to Revelation, if, there is, if there's one message, when you look at the stories of the people that God used and the way that God developed them and used them, if there's one message that the Bible, just from every angle in profound and creative ways, drives home to us again and again and again, when you see Joseph being thrown into a pit, when you see Abraham having to wait 25 years for a promise God gave him, when you see King David walking through the valley of the shadow of death, when you see Paul the Apostle praying over and over, God, would you take this thorn from my flesh? And God saying, no, I'm too good to give you what it is you're asking me to do. What you get when you zoom out from those stories eventually is this idea that none of us have any idea. The day that we start following Jesus, none of us have any idea what it's going to take, how far we're going to have to go or what God is going to have to lead us into and out of over and over again to finally begin to heal us of our self-absorption and our pride and our envy and our anger and our self-centeredness and our bitterness and our resentment and our everything that's so incompatible with who he's calling us to be so that we can begin to be of some use to the place, to the people that he's placed in our lives. And as I was thinking through this, I immediately started thinking of this this brilliant line from the Lord of the Rings, if you haven't noticed yet, the formula for my teachings are three points, a C.S. Lewis quote and something from the Lord of the Rings, so here it is. This is a line delivered to the main character, Frodo. It says, it's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. And in the same way... <clears throat> What Mark's gospel account beginning to end, what the entire Bible beginning to end would say to each and every one of us is it is, make no mistake, it is a dangerous business following the real Jesus of the Bible. Because if we just start putting one foot in front of the other behind him, there is no telling. We just have no idea where we might get swept off to. We have no idea what he might need us what he might need to lead us through for our good. We have no idea how hard it will be. And I think all we ever really know at the end of the day is the same thing that Jesus told the disciples here. We know that if we just hang on, if we just follow, somehow, some way, eventually, it's going to be worth it. And I don't know of anybody that, that phrased this idea in a way that, that's um, quite as, as captivating to me as George MacDonald. I shared this with you not too many weeks ago, so pardon me for recycling content, but I thought this was the most appropriate way to, to end this teaching, and, and we've just about arrived at the end of our time. About 150 years ago, George MacDonald wrote a children's book called The Princess and the Goblin. It's about an eight-year-old girl named Irene uh, who lives in a house where her fairy grandmother occasionally appears in the attic. And on one occasion, her grandmother gives her this ring with a thread attached to it, and, uh, and she promises that she'll hold the ball at the other end. The only catch is that the thread is invisible to the eye. It can't be seen. It can only be felt. And what that means is you can't stand on the outside of this thread and decide for yourself whether or not you, you like where it's taking you. You simply have to put your hand on it and start walking. And when Irene receives it, she's ecstatic because she knows now 
whatever she goes through, she always has a lifeline to her grandmother. And her grandmother tells her that while that's true, the path that the thread takes her on may very well surprise her. She just tells her, I just need you to know that as long as your hand is on the thread, my hand holds the other end. So some time passes, and these evil creatures break into Irene's house, and she has the presence of mind to do what her grandmother told her to do. She puts her, her ring with a thread attached to it under her pillow. She feels for the thread, and she starts walking. And it takes her out of her house. But the more that she follows the thread, the more that she begins to realize to her shock and horror that this thread was leading her right to the cave of these evil creatures that had broke into her house trying to kill her. It was literally the last place on earth that she wanted to go. But she had to follow her thread, so she followed it into this winding cave system until eventually her thread brought her right to this wall of rocks, essentially to a dead end. She was confused, and she thought there must be some kind of mistake, so she decided, well, at least I can follow my thread backwards to find my way out. But the moment she tried to follow the thread backwards, it disappeared. The thread could only be followed forward. So she breaks down crying. She feels hopeless. But she eventually gathers herself and realizes the only way to follow her thread is to follow it right through this wall. So she starts to pull at the stones. And she cuts her hands and her fingers are bleeding and she's lost and she's alone and she's afraid and she's in pain. But she continues to pull until a small opening forms in this wall. And on the other side of it, she hears the voice of her friend, Curdy. Curdy was captured by these evil creatures and he's absolutely amazed that anybody, let alone this eight-year-old girl, had found him. And so she asked, how did you find here? What are you doing here? And she said, my grandmother sent me here and I think I'm starting to understand why. So she, she continues to pull at the stones until the opening was big enough for Curdy to climb through, which he does, and he proceeds to go out. But Irene continues to go in. And he tries to stop her and he says, what are you doing? That's not, that's not the way out. That's the, that's the wrong way. And Irene looks at him, and she simply says, I know, but this is the way my thread goes, so I have to follow it. And if I had stopped following it before, when it didn't make sense to me, I would have never found you. So even though it doesn't make sense to me now, this is where my thread leads, and I must follow it. And of course, there's a happily ever ending, because her grandmother really can be trusted. But in his book, Jesus the King, Tim Keller references this story, and he provides a commentary on it. And I want to end today reading that commentary to you. While I do this, worship team, you can come on back. <clears throat> Keller said, When Jesus told the disciples, We're on the way, follow me, they had no idea where he was going. They thought he was going to go from strength to strength to strength. They had no idea. When you start to follow Jesus... You have no idea how far you'll have to go. Jesus says, follow me. I'm going to take you on a journey, and I don't want you to turn to the left or to the right. I want you to put me first. I want you to keep trusting me, to stick with me, not turn back, not give up. Turn to me in all the disappointments and injustices that will happen to you. I'm going to take you to places that will make you say, why in the world are you taking me there? Even then, I want you to trust me. The path Jesus takes you on may look like it's taking you to one dead end after another. Nevertheless, the thread does not work in reverse. If you just obey Jesus and follow it forward, it'll do its work. You say, that sounds pretty hard, and you're right. 
How can we possibly follow the thread? It's simple, but profound. Jesus himself does absolutely everything he's calling us to do. When he called James and John to leave their father in the boat, he'd already left his father's throne. And later he's going to be ripped from his father's presence on the cross. It's going to look as if your thread is taking you into dead ends. Places where you'll get bloody. Where the only way to follow the thread looks like it could crush you. But don't try to go backward. Don't turn to the left. Don't turn to the right. Jesus Christ's kingship will not crush you. He was crushed for you. He followed his thread to the cross so you can follow yours into his arms. <clears throat> All right, team meeting before we're done. I've been doing this long enough to know that for a number of people listening to this, what I just read is not an intellectual exercise. It's a lived reality. I guarantee you, if we went around the room, we'd all be crying by the time we're done hearing what some of you all are going through, where some of your threads are leading. So I don't know what you bring to the table this morning, but I'm willing to bet that there's a, a number of people listening to this where right now Jesus is calling you. Your thread is leading you to face something you do not want to face. He's calling you to do something you would rather avoid. He's calling you to go someplace that is just the absolute last place you want to go, and it's dark, and it's isolating, and it's terrifying, and you're wondering how on earth is this going to work out. All I know is that if Mark were here today, if Mark were alive today, he would say, follow your thread. Just follow your thread. The king that put it in your hand can be trusted. Just follow your thread. It's the hardest thing you'll ever have to do, but it's the best thing you'll ever do with your life. Follow your thread. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, thank you that you followed your thread to the cross. And speaking personally, I don't know why it, it still surprises me when you lead me into the same things that you've been leading people through since you've been leading people. I don't know why that is. I don't know why that surprises me. It shouldn't. And I don't know who's on the other side of this teaching right now that's going through something that just seems unbearable. Where their thread's taking them. Just asking you, Jesus, please give us the strength to just put one foot in front of the other and keep following that thread, knowing that it's not going to crush us. Because the king that holds the other end of it loves us. He went through hell for us. He went to the cross for us. That's where your thread led you so that our thread eventually, somehow, some way, even if the path surprises us, it's going to lead to your arms. Please help us to be a community of people that walk today, whatever you're walking us through, we walk through all the poise. We walk with all the poise and all the confidence and all the peace and all the joy of people who, who know that our thread eventually leads us into the arms of our Savior. Amen.